Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're grateful. We'd ask that you would open your word to us, keep us growing the direction we need to grow to be righteous before you. In your son's name, amen. Been, been in a lot of conversations recently about righteousness, arguments, we call them, conversations. Christians are always concerned in any ministry, any church, of how to maintain and encourage the righteousness of the believer. Certain passages are sort of the difficult ones that people really don't want to see them come up. One is turn the other cheek, that passage. That always ends up being a discussion. And another one is, not, is Romans 13. Now I don't have Romans 13 here because we're, gonna, we're not going to talk political science this morning. This is, I'm just not doing it. But it's a nice moment to look at. I'm just going to read through that section. You'll notice there's nothing bolded in that section. It's like I, I'm not really going to be commenting on it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of him who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are our ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay, them, pay all of them their dues, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue, to whom revenue is due, respect, to whom respect is due, honor, to whom honor is due. Not a whole lot of wiggle room in that. Especially when you read it through, stressing certain words, you know. Read it through again on your free time. So then, Evan, if you're not going to be talking about Romans 13, why is it on the sheet? Um, well, because I, I just wanted to introduce our discomfort at it as Americans, in the West, with our guns hung low, because we're all our own commanders, masters of our own fate, captains of our own souls, and we don't like this. Oh, we do like this when we become fathers, husbands, employers. Oh, we love this, because the, this is one of the most bas bastardy, is that a word? Bastardic. When someone is in, uh, encouraged to uh, not play well with others, the reason they don't play well with others is because they want the response they're unwilling to give. Okay, that, That's what makes them absolutely unjust in their handling of authority. A father that, or a husband that wants to have boy instant joyful bowing and scraping girl and wife in her little French made bonnet uh, being uh, completely I was negotiating with the twins to become maids in various houses in the church you know with 
Um, they wanted aprons. They were holding out for aprons. We like that. We like service, right? We like, a, we like someone showing up at our table at a restaurant, not with that obsequious, greasy, um, uh, I'll be, what do they say in every restaurant? I'll be taking care of you this evening. My name is Ryan Braden. Something awful. Friend. Who? What did I? Friend. Friend. I'm, yeah. Hey, friend. You talk about my friend. That was. Uh, there we got a new movie come out on Mr. Rogers. I keep thinking of Rachel Jankovic because when she was little, she'd be watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and he'd say, "Will you be my neighbor?" And he'll say, "She would yell at the TV. I am not." your friend. <laughs> she is always straightforward about things. Somewhere along this line I got lost. We know that people like to be in authority. We know they don't like to honor authority. Wives don't want to honor their husbands. Kids don't want to honor their parents. We don't want to honor the king. Whatever the case, we always get a little balkish about passages like this. It suggests to you that you are under somebody else. That their will actually applies to you. Okay? When it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord, we have problems on all sorts of levels with that. Right? You start looking at Christianity sort of sideways. Hey, you mean I have to submit to the Lord a certain way? You mean he gets to decide certain things for me? So I only had that passage of the first part of Romans 13 as a reference to our, the state of our souls. We, we don't like this. And then we wonder, first... Our first attempt is to, okay, yeah, we've got to be biblical, so we've got to figure out a way around this passage. That, that's considered biblical these days. If I work on getting around it, you almost have seminary class getting around St. Paul 101. I mean, that's just what you do, you know, when he says things are uncomfortable. You want to figure out, okay, what, what, what can I pretend it says, say, pretend that it says? so I can do the pretend thing. You have a suspicion you know what it says, right? When it says children obey your parents, when it says wives submit yourselves to your husbands, when it says obey the governing authorities and pay them their taxes, you bohunkus. You go, I kind of know what he's talking about because I kind of know what I don't want to do. So there are some people without changing their mind at all, are going to go, okay, all right. I've got to do this. I've got to submit myself to the governing authorities. And you can always see the seething and get pulled over by a cop for exceeding the speed limit by five miles per hour. And, they're, and they're, they know they're being righteous, sort of, in the way they're speaking to the police officer, but they know in their heart they are planting his severed head on a pike. That's what they're doing. Well, I'm here, you know, I, 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 Christianity is not like this. The reason I brought this up, because Romans 12, which I did not have room to put on here, was a wonderful passage. One of the best passages in, in the scriptures of loading you up with the Christian life. And it starts over here on the left-hand side. I give you Romans 12, 1, and... 
down through 3. You know the passage. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I bid every one among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned him. Now, one of the reasons this sermon came up is we were arguing at Drones yesterday about arrogance. Um, we didn't get anywhere. I mean, we, good points got made. People went home with the ideas to talk or think about them more. But this passage was quoted by someone, I forget who, to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Now, I was, look, I was looking at that passage. I was reading through Romans 13 uh, for another reason. And I looked back at chapter 12 and I saw this and I said, oh yeah, we talked about that yesterday. I said, oh yeah, that applies to what we're thinking about. The problem is that the problem is is that we don't, not that we fail to obey God when he told us to submit ourselves to the authorities. It's the problem is we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, which means I'm thinking of others less, at least in time. I'm thinking of myself more. I don't have time for other people. I'm taking a place that's uh, maybe higher than people I shouldn't take a place above. Because love, love undoes all your defenses. Your love, not someone else's love for you. Your love for people in the world. Now this passage, I just introduced it here because not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think, the stress in all sin is the, the superiority of self to award that self with what that self has decided that self wants. That was you know, the old Al Geyer saying. I want what I want when I want it, and I want it now. We know that we're tempted when we're lured and enticed by someone else's desire. No, by our own desires. What we want. And we decide to follow and serve what we want, which is driving 65 miles per hour instead of 60. Because the only reason is, no, you don't need to get there that fast. You know how you have you know, some guy you see pull, you know, passing their way through traffic on the way to Seattle. They, they catch up with you at Othello, and then boom, they blow past you. And then you're sitting next to them at a stoplight in Seattle going, hold it, we're at the same stoplight. How'd this happen? Well, they had to go to the bathroom and other things. It just doesn't work out for anybody. You don't need to get there any faster. You don't. I know it seems important. I know your engine probably will clog up unless you blow out the, you know, carbons. I'm sure that's it too. 
No, you just want to do it. You, you, this is my car. Mine. And what's the government doing sitting on my lap driving my car? Yeah. I'm sure you've got my, my father-in-law, who was not a believer, had a couple Porsches, and he would drive from California to Idaho to visit us very quickly because he could. He was a sports car road rally enthusiast, and he knew how to drive his Porsches. And he knew that the lesser man, for the lesser man, that's what those little white signs with the numbers on them were for. The, the, the troglodytes, the, the, the barely illiterate man who could barely paddle his way to Idaho, but he had a Porsche and he knew how to drive it. And he could, he really, he could take those turns really quickly. Now, he was fully convinced that he was the authority instituted by God for the conveyance of that Porsche and his wife to Idaho. Eh, don't think of yourself more highly than you want. Sober judgment, stop. Go, who in the world are you? The next passage, which I didn't have anywhere on the sheet, it goes into talking about gifts in the church body, and then verse 9, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, never flag in zeal, be aglow with the Spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in your hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, practice hospitality. This person is exploding the largesse of Christian goodness to others. Bless those that persecute you. Hold it. And do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Okay, that's easy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Not so easy. Do not be haughty. That verse came up yesterday. But associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Know if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the end of chapter 12. Now, well, I don't know if you ever saw it, but he just told you not to avenge yourselves. Vengeance is his. He will attend to it. You're supposed to bless your enemy. And then in the first part of chapter 13, which you find to just be an annoying overreach of the federal government, is really him telling you how he is going to deal with the vengeance you want to see dish out. He says they are God's servants to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer because, buckos, you're not allowed to. You were told you can't. Somebody better. We're covering this in the, in the Revelation where the the souls of the martyred saints under the altar are crying out for vengeance. And I said, well, there's going to be a few more martyrs, but then we'll do it. And the whole book is about God coming back and destroying Judaism and destroying Jerusalem in punishment for the death of the martyrs. God deals with things. 
Do you want him to deal with it or not? It's not merely you just... One of the problems with any legalism, even if it's a rule that God gave, if here's chapter 13 of Romans, and you say, put it in somebody's lap, and you go, I don't want to do this, but I gotta. You don't answer Christian ethics with obedience. You answer Christian ethics with love, which you will then obey God. All right? Because the loving person knows how their being is not the first place. Their will is not the first place. They stop, and the first thing they answer, and the first thing they grant is what they want in life. America is designed to make you want, make you get, make you get it prime by tomorrow. That it's going to be on your front step because you want it then. Now, after you said all those wonderful things at the end of chapter 12, having said, don't think of yourself too highly, look at this life, look at the richness of this life together. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of some things over here. I'll take care of the wicked with the government, but you kind of got to be on board with me on this government thing so that you are not resisting it too. I might have to dish out some of that vengeance on you. He gets to the end of that, because this whole, this whole thing, chapter 12 and chapter 13, is this long, almost song to the goodness the Christian life can be. Verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. And we don't, we don't often simplify the Christian life. You know, we, our motto at the house is, is, it's the thought that counts. This is the kind of thought, this is the nature of ethics, this is the nature of the Christian good. We owe no one anything. I don't have to pay them out a certain amount and a certain amount of you know, you love them. I owe them nothing but love. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. If I love, I, God knows that if you love the person. Have you ever loved a girl? Isn't that a song? Could be. I'll write one. If you love the girl, because it's usually the guys, the guys are faced with this. Women, I know, you can be in love, but I don't ever have to buy him anything. He can buy me jewelry, flowers, tickets to, what is it? You get to go to Les Mis? So guys, you know that, that it's not much of a lover who can't come up with something good to buy her. You know that if you're moved by real affection, you will buy the thing. Something. It doesn't, you know, you'll be out there searching a long time. But you'll find something. Because I don't have to write to you, you know. Uh, uh, you hate those lists? You know, your seventh anniversary is the cardboard anniversary. <laughs> so do something inventive with cardboard. I don't know if it is. What, what's the cardboard? 
Anybody know? Five. Paper is like one or something like that. What's diamond? What's <laughs> It's a while yet, isn't it? Okay. It's all a device because people who don't really love each other have to be told what they're going to buy. They're going to follow the rules because following the rules is how you get real righteousness. You, it tells me to submit to the government and darn it, I'm going to because that's the rule. And wife, you better submit to your husband because that's the rule for you and I, I have to love you because that's the rule for me. And no, we, no, it's, uh, think about, I owe this world nothing but love. Because if I love, I fulfill everything. God had to write it out for the Jews because they weren't loving. You have to write it out for people who aren't going to think of it. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Excuse me, he jumps right into the ten. It's not some sort of obscure commandment about uh, you know mixing your flax with your linen or something, I don't know what or boiling a kid that's mother's milk, you got some laws out there you can't, you know, okay I can understand why they quit that we know that we can get some combination threads and polyester and cotton and that's not immoral you think but here you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. He says, oh, let me get a little grab bag of the biggest. You know, maybe bowing down to other gods would be a little bigger, but you know, he grabs the no adultery, no killing, no stealing, no coveting, and any other commandment are summed up in this sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. Now, you may have a different view than I do, which is fine about how extensive that is, but you have to walk up to this with love preceding every examination of it. Because if I, if I, if I don't find the debt to love primary However I address the law, I will not become loving by obeying the law. I have to have the debt of love paid in order that the law have the right, the, the imperative of God have the right um, place in your life. Now, once he says that, now he says that at the end of this wonderful passage, he said, remember back at the beginning that your body is a living sacrifice don't be conformed, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. <laughs> I would like you as Christians to start thinking that what I, what I should be doing is not just knowing what God is trying to design this universe to be, that, but my path to it is me paying this debt, the debt that I should love. You know, if you're wondering, how do, I, how do I know what's right to do regarding all the different rules the government comes down with? Just love. It'll put you in the right position. And if you don't think of yourself more highly than you want to think, if you don't, are not always self-rewarding. Self-reward will always find points of contention with opportunities to love. Because you kind of don't want to give that to them because you want it yourself. I, 
I had a very low, in, in my, probably my fourth grade year, maybe fifth. It was one of those exchange of presents at school, Christmas time thing. You know, you were supposed to, you drew a name and you had to go off to the store and buy that kid a present. And I bought that kid a present that the more I thought about it, the more I wanted it. And there it was in my house. It was a, I still remember my crime. I didn't do anything. It was a little Winchester rifle, about this long, little plastic bullets. But the, the lever action worked. I wanted that so bad. It was out of metal. And the more it was in my life, the more I didn't want him to have it. And it was just awful because when I had to give it away, I mean, in tears, I mean, I, my, in tears. And then, of course, God in his <laughs> judgments had me get something just stupid, just absolutely stupid from whatever. I don't remember that at all, because it was nothing. You start thinking about wanting what you want, don't you? Rather than thinking that you're actually somebody that, to whom things should come. The benefits should arrive at. Uh, people should compliment me. People should speak well of me. People should give me stuff. Actually, we're supposed to be working on loving people and realizing that all the good we could do in life is fulfilled this way, and it says it in a wonderful way at the end of this chapter. Besides, besides this, you know what hour it is, how it is a full time now for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Now, this was 2,000 years ago. I don't know what your eschatology is, but the end of the world didn't happen. I think what Paul was expecting did. But what Paul was expecting did happen, and it changed the nature of things then. But you are sitting here in this life with the redemption not yet complete in your life, with the resurrection not fulfilled in your life. And yet, you say, well, and here you are teaching your Revelation Bible study where it's suggesting that who knows? Well, who knows? Who knows when the end will be? But let's pretty be confident. Me, maybe more than most of you, I'll be dead in 30. Okay? If you, if you could say for sure that the end of the world was in 30 years, kind of like Al Gore with his 12. Oh, we're going to that. 30 years, your end, some of you is going to be 50, some of you is going to be 60. Your world is over. Because your, your salvation is nearer to you every day. I was talking to Diane on the front porch. I was like almost, or I think it was Diane. What's your name again? Diane. I was there the other day. The other, the other, we mixed the Diane's up. Um, about August, being around the corner. And you go, you were just closer to our salvation. Your death, your end. So, you know what hour it is, how it's full time to wake from sleep because we actually have a glorious life to live here and we should have maybe taken some time 
to consider what thought process is going to make you a joy to everybody around you, a benefit to the kingdom of God, and a faithful server to the will of God. That you may prove what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. That you're walking around six inches off the deck. It's time to wake up. Let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is a, that's a great distinction. The works of darkness, the armor of light. There's something illuminating about the vastly different approach to good that Christianity has than every other religion on the planet, including Christendom. Christendom has always been satisfied with saying, well, these are our rules. The Buddhists have their rules. The Hindus have their rules. And we have our rules. And this is how we do it. Christianity is now, I forgive. I am merciful. I am loving. And I expect you to be moved by love. Not moved by ticking off the commandments. This is armor of light. And what happens when you have light, it's not, you, you, you have light, and it's not like enlightenment. I mean, I, being enlightened is good. It's fine. Okay, now you understand. I, I finally grip. But really, you're illuminating. Because the armor of light, let us conduct ourselves becomingly as in the day. We have armor of light. You have been posed with a simple task, a simple debt. Love the people in front of you. With hospitality, with grace, with forgiveness, with help, with whatever's, whatever's fed your way. You're only supposed to be loving the person right in front of you. You're not told to write a check for Calcutta. Calcutta can work, you know, the Christians in Calcutta can work on that. You're not told to love people. You're told to love your neighbor. You love your neighbor as yourself. And with the armor of light, I'm suggesting to you this morning that this debt of love, this debt of love is the armor of light. And what it does is it makes you aware that everything is lit. You are we're, Davis and I were talking about exposing the works of darkness. Is that in Ephesians? Somewhere. It's in the Bible. Um, much of what you expose, you expose by how you live. You, you live graciously with your family. You live graciously with your friends and your co-workers. You live lovingly in the society of believers. And you look at the society of believers and you go, I don't, a lot of churches just are not living lovingly. A lot of families that are called Christian are not living lovingly. Nobody's wearing the armor of light. And so all the light of, whenever you have some light in the room, you get invited over for dinner and you get to watch it. Watch that fresh hell. Let us conduct ourselves becomingly as in the day. Now look what it lets. Not in reveling and in drunkenness. Not in debauchery and licentiousness. Not in quarreling and jealousy. Boy, he's got us pegged. 
not in reveling and becoming late because the light switch just got flipped. I don't, I'm not speaking ill of a club that my daughter sings at, but the, uh, the Goodfoot in Portland, you don't ever want the lights turned on in there because you wouldn't want to touch a single article. You know, suddenly you'd be aware John O'Brien's head ex- would explode because it's a crime. So the lights are very, very, very dim. You know what it's like to have the lights come on starkly, immediately. Um, and it says there's a becomingness that the illumination has. There's a becoming behavior. As in the day that you're getting up, you're getting ready for the day. You women probably know, I'm not going out without putting some attention to my hair. Becomingly. Reveling and drunkenness. Only reveling in drunkenness. I'm not saying that, that, the, that Paul is thinking what I'm thinking on the matter, but I, as I look at certain behavior qualities in humanity, reveling in drunkenness, that wild and crazy guy dancing like an idiot. That's the, and it's spelled idiot, but I have it here. Dancing like an idiot is because you, you kind of want the, the lights dim for this because some of your moves are just really disturbing. But that's what people, people want to be in a large group, justifying it by group, justifying it by darkness. We want to have this never really examinable and displayed. You're supposed to be living in such a way as if you were a lit creature walking through life. Not taking opportunity to hide serving yourself. If you want to love, the light's easier to love in. Then it's no debauchery and licentiousness. That's in the erotic area. That's, I mean, you have their humanity damaged by the lack of self-control. You have their relationships in terms of their biological sexual relationships damaged by the way they go after their pleasures. And then it comes up with something that really actually is why the passage stood out with me. Not in quarreling and jealousy, and that's where they make sure for all the Christians who would never, ever dance in the dark. Okay? Either euphemistically or, or uh, at a party. They would never think of bad things that people do biologically. They would never... They would not dance, they would not play cards, not wear short hair. Um, But boy, it's almost like a Christian gift. Quarreling and jealousy. Okay, let's actually name them after apostles. Let's actually name them after some Christian theology. This side of the quarrel, and I've told you this before, reading in Oliver Cromwell's dispatches to Parliament about well, the battle that was coming up against the Scots, and he let them know that their battle cry is the covenant. Ours is Lord of Hosts. Excuse me, but I seem to recall that both sides here are Christian armies who supposedly love the Lord Jesus. Let's just grant that nobody is paying the debt of love. Nobody. Nobody is going after this 
in some sort of armor of light sort of way, like, what in the world's going on? There are cannons on both sides with men standing next to them, firing lead shot this big into the chest of another Christian because, Lord of hosts, or the covenant, because they were fighting over church forms of government. People think the 1600s was a time of greatness for the faith. It was the worst time in history. Christians were in charge in England, and this is what they get up to. Quarreling and jealousy. Now, why did they get up there? Because we know perfectly well, we know perfectly well that some guy at John's Alley, staggering out of the club, he's a sinner. And you see somebody caught in some adulterous situation or sleeping with their girlfriend or having whatever you know, problems in the um, alphabet soup arena that they have, we know those are sinners as well. Not in quarreling and jealousy. Now I have a little reference here, because this is what jumped out of my mind, is out of Galatians 3. I didn't print it out because, well, can't do everything. But I have a Bible here. Let me ask you only this. This is Galatians 3.2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Now what did he just say? He said that what we do in group identifications... Any kind of thing that is you're attached to this group, it's you and your attachments. You and your family, you and your people group, you and your nation, you and your church, you and your denomination, whatever it is, those are your grounds of quarreling and jealousy. But he says in verse 14, the last verse of the sermon, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And now when you say make no provision for the flesh, we know perfectly well that good Christians should not make provision for drinking too much in the bar, and I should not make provision for sleeping around, especially in weirdnesses. Okay? But nobody keeps going and says, you know, I really shouldn't, I really shouldn't end with the flesh. He describes part of the flesh because the flesh supports you and your wants. Remember, chapter 12, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Get it worked out that you're not all that, and you have a debt, number one, of loving everybody, and it would help you fulfill all of God's commandments, and if you don't try to fulfill it by human ways, you want to fulfill it by denying your humanity and becoming dissipated and chaotic. You want to fulfill it by getting enough pleasure sexually in this world. You want to fulfill it by having your group win. My stuff, my way. That's all flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He told you to put on the armor of light. And then it says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd say that makes them synonymous. The Lord Jesus Christ is 
the love lived. Good example for us in the Gospels and someone we know in our belief in the Gospel. So what do you do about all the rest of the world? Well, the rest of the world needs it. Just like the Jews needed the law, they need things that will keep them in check. You are different. You're illuminated. You know that it's love. Don't fall for your desires being dressed up like piety. Just because you can label your quarreling and your jealousy Christian terms doesn't make you good. You're, you're maybe twice as despicable. Learn to love. Let love carry you through all the goodness you need to be carried through. And let love superintend your relationships, especially with other believers. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. We want your benevolence, your way, your kindness, your mercy, your love for the people around us, especially those who do us wrong, that we would love our enemies, that we would pray for those who persecute us, that we would answer those who curse us with a blessing, that we trust you, that we know how to give up our own interests. Lord, make us more than human. Make us like your son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.